If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Remember that from high school? Rudyard Kipling wrote it in 1895. Four years later, he went on to cause the, coin the phrase, the white man's burden, which demonstrates the fact that he could come up with both lines, that we're never going to know where we find value because we are going to need the opening line of that famous poem, if increasingly as we grapple with the nuanced choices we have to make if we are going to hope to save this planet in a recognizable form. To get it right looks as though it's going to be harder than we thought. On the side of the angels where we are, we often hear a kind of upbeat boosterism. If we can just build enough wind turbines and install enough solar panels and keep enough oil in the ground and somehow persuade Congress to get their head out of it, if we can keep the, then we can keep the pretty nice kind of life we have now. But it's coming faster and more seriously than we expected. There are complications. We had hoped biofuels could replace fossil fuels so we could grow our gasoline. But turning over large amounts of our corn crop from feeding humans or even cattle to making biofuels reduced the food supply and raised prices. Plus, converting more land into cornfields adds to deforestation, which contributes directly to climate change. Data centers are taking over the world, as we are well aware in Loudoun County, to produce the energy and water they need to stay at operating temperatures is now surpassing the airline industry as a source of pollution. Air conditioning for people. There are more than a billion single room air conditioning units in the world now, one for every eight people. <clears throat> AC, of course, built the Sun Belt in this country by enabling the southern migration of the late 20th century, but now we're dependent on it. And about 20% of the electricity used in buildings is, comes from air conditioning. So it's a major contributor to global warming which of course makes us demand even more air conditioning. There's a new book out called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. It explains that it is increased heat that is driving every single climate impact, fires of course and drought, but also super hurricanes and floods and the possible demise of the Gulf Stream. <clears throat> and this heat, isn't just annoying, it's deadly. What the author Jeff Gadell maintains is that the heart of the American government's failure to tackle this is the fact that people of color make up most of the agricultural workers and the construction workers and the homeless people who suffer the most from the heat. There are no federally guaranteed water and shade breaks. Goodell writes that it's like reading what people used to say about slavery. It is absolutely an undercurrent, he says, that having Mexicans pave roads in Austin, Texas, when it's 107, is fine because they're from Mexico and they're used to it. It's out and out racism. Goodell's afraid that we'll just stop, we'll just start uh, adapting to heat deaths the way that we adapted to COVID deaths. We'll just accept the fact that 60,000 people are going to die from the heat every summer around the world. And we'll forget 
that it's not an act of God. We did it and we can change it. But we feel helpless and hopeless. And the poet Bell Hooks agreed with us. She said, I often feel a tremendous sense of grief about what's happening in our world. I don't know an aware person who doesn't feel that grief. It's hard to wake up in the Buddhist sense to open your eyes and see what's happening without feeling that grief. But Hooks reminds us that Thich Nhat Hanh told us to take that grief and use it as compost. So how do we do that? Well, a movie came out in 2021, the year Bell Hooks died, and it's called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. And in it, the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek said, the first step to freedom is not just to change reality to feed your dreams, is to change the way you dream. And this hurts because all our satisfactions come from our dreams. The famous American dream, based on never-ending market expansion, but perpetual growth is how cancer cells work. Zizek says, how come it's easier to picture the destruction of our entire planet than make a few changes to our economic system? So how do we change the way we dream? In a book by Lawrence Gonzalez called, about wilderness survival, called very aptly for our times, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why, he talks about making plans, which he calls neatly, memories of the future. A plan is something we try out and we see if, it fit, if the future fits it. But where we get into trouble is that when it doesn't work, we're sometimes too wedded to it to let it go. That can lead to despair and paralysis. But the other side of that coin is that very American optimism of ours that says we've got a plan and we've got the know-how and it's gonna work out. Remember how Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan till he gets punched in the mouth? Paradoxically, despair and optimism are both excuses not to act because they're both ways of saying, I believe I see the world as it really is, but we can't do that, especially about something as huge and chaotic and all encompassing as climate change. Virginia Woolf wrote, the future is dark, which is the best thing the future can be, I think, by which she meant not that it's terrifying, but that we don't know what's gonna happen. Anything is possible. And that, as Pema Chodron says, is our grounds for hope. We have to have humility, the world's rarest quality, the humility to understand that we don't know what's gonna happen, and therefore we should feel neither despairingly stymied nor optimistically complacent. There is a middle way where we can act. If we expect that our lives are going to be different now from the way they were, we can stop the automatic reactions to try to get them back to the way they used to be. Here's a way to practice. When you walk into a room, wherever it is, and say, oh my God, it's hot, or geez, it's freezing, have a new relationship with your thermostat. Don't rush over there and turn on the heat or turn up the air. As Pema says, about everything, sit with it a few minutes longer, learn to be hot, learn to be cool, the things we most wanted in our 20s, now's our chance. I don't know. 
I don't know an aware person who doesn't have that grief. Take that grief and use it as compost. If you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can do that, Kipling tells us what our reward will be, and now it's very literally true. Ours is the earth and everything that's in it. A tree stump and a human fingerprint. How identical they almost are. <clears throat> in my 20s, I realized that trees always spoke to me. Recently, in an icebreaker exercise for an all ages read together board meeting, we were asked, what did we want to be when we grew up? So in school, I had taken a test and I'm sure a lot of you have taken this same test to kind of determine your likely career choice. Usually it took it like middle school. Um, and my results were a nurse or a teacher. After some 400 hours of volunteering as a candy striper in our local hospital in high school, I went with teacher. <laughs> but what I really wanted to be was a park ranger. I spent most of my summers in the woods. My family camped, rustic camping, uh, you know, where the animals come and eat your food in the river and things like that. Um, and I spent every summer with my grandmother near a lake. And I hiked around that lake almost every day. I soaked in the beauty of the trees and the smells and the sounds of the forest. Later, I was a camp counselor in Pennsylvania, close to the Audubon Bird Sanctuary, where I led group hikes. And to this day, probably my favorite activity is hiking state and national parks and botanical gardens um, around the US and beyond. So as you may already know, October's theme is the gift of heritage. And Tamar and I had the gift of spending time with our in-betweens last Sunday where we explored the topic of finding your roots. And one of the exercises was a meditation, which I would like to invite you to do this morning. Um, so please get comfortable. And if you like, you may close your eyes and take three long, deep breaths as you feel yourself sink deeply into this space and your body becomes relaxed. Now imagine that you were standing on a path at the edge of a small forest. The bright sun warms your back as you face the opening in the trees. The cool breeze from the forest is inviting you to enter. The path is clear and broad and it is easy to follow. And so you step into the forest. All around you, you can hear birds calling to one another. Their sounds are gentle and sweet. It is as if they are encouraging you to take a few more steps into their home. And so you do. The peace in the forest is total. You are aware of small animals around you. You see rabbits and squirrels romping and playing and you can hear the sounds of more birds hidden in the dense canopy of the forest. As you continue to walk forward, there before you is a beautiful, 
massive, strong tree. It has a strong root system coming out of the earth, anchoring it in place. You decide to climb into the roots and it's as if the roots create a special natural bench for you to sit on. You notice that the roots connect to a small creek of cool running water near where you are sitting. And you dangle your feet into the water below, sending cool, pleasant tingling up from your feet to your ankles, then up your legs to your stomach. And now you feel the coolness touching your fingers, and then up your arms, into your chest, your neck, and then your forehead feels cool and calm. Breathe in this cool, refreshing feeling. Your entire body feels refreshed and relaxed as you dangle your feet in the creek, sitting on the strong roots of the tree. Your mind begins to focus on the strength of the tree, its power, and its stability. You think about how it deeply rooted into the ground and how it is connected to the earth. Your thoughts drift to how the tree gives its shade, its oxygen to the air we breathe, how it provides a home to birds and other animals, and how it gives you a sense of being strong, stable, and protected. You take one last deep breath in the forest and you know it is time to leave. You begin to start walking down the forest path, feeling the sun warm your body again. And you turn around to bid goodbye to the tree. You know that you can return to the strong stability of the tree and its refreshing waters below whenever you need to. Take another deep breath in and return to the room when you are ready. So my wife Tamara and I became great aunts this summer with the arrival of Remy Grace in July. And when we were asked, we, when we asked her parents what we could get the baby. They said a backpack for hiking. <laughs> they know how we'll be spending our time with her. Um, just gonna read a quick excerpt from a book uh, by Diana Beresford Kroger to speak for the trees. There is a deity in nature that we all understand. When you walk into a forest, great or small, you enter it in one state and emerge from it calmer. You have that cathedral feeling and you're never the same again. You can come out of there and you know something big has happened to you. Simply walking into a forest is a holiday for your mind. Your soul and your body are changed, allowing your imagination and your creativity to bloom. I think this is a miracle and there are so many other miracles of the natural world left for us to discover. We will feel the joy of those miracles. We will save the forest and the planet. The trees are telling us how to do just that.
All we have to do is listen and remember. So my journey of activism began in the late 1960s when I read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I was deeply dismayed that human activities could have such a devastating impact on nature. The seed of environmentalism was planted, but it took a lifetime to germinate. My mother was an unconscious influence. Despite her rigorous groundbreaking training as a female physician, she paid attention to nature. At the end of their lives, I became my parents' primary caregiver by living with them where they aged in place. Taking my mom on daily walks to their beautiful gardens, I could see her deep attention to and deep appreciation of nature. Trips to the garden rejuvenated her. She even got inspired to write poetry. So maybe I inherited her sensitivity and appreciation of nature. For myself, being outdoors is a tonic. When I was teaching, I sponsored the Ecology Club. Sometimes I felt like I didn't have time to do that, but going outside with the kids completely cleared my mind and allowed me to prepare for the next day's lesson. I think this is evidence that nature loves me too, creating a sacred bond. Whenever I'm outside, I like to observe my surroundings and ponder things like, why are there so many birds in my daughter's North Carolina neighborhood? Why do the leaves at the end of branches change colors first? Why did it take me so long to notice the delicious wine berries all over my yard? I'm taking a second look, looking and wondering deeper, amplifying my awe of nature each time. So I decided to live as lightly on the earth as possible, not impacting the earth negatively, as Rachel Carson revealed. I'm grateful that my husband, Steve, who supports a low impact lifestyle and my activism, we decided to build our house using a passive solar design with locally available wood and more than standard insulation in the outer walls and the roof. Over the years, we installed rooftop solar, recycled, washed and reused plastic bags. And today we adopt zero waste practices, grow fruits and veggies, select native plants for new plantings, and add an R to the three R's, making four R's our guiding principles. Reuse, reduce, recycle, rethink. Rethinking is critical because every choice you make will either be part of the solution or part of the problem. You make choices every day. What to eat, what stores to patronize, how to get from one place to another, and how many trips you take each day. What to wear, how to heat and cool your home, and to what degree. How much trash you and your family make. How you spend your time and energy. Today, we have tools to achieve a livable world, livable world for everyone's children. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, which could be better renamed the Transition Off of Fossil Fuel Energies to Renewable Energy Act. Home electrification is the key component to transition off of fossil fuels. As you may have learned in the Earth Justice Earth Day Service, 
electricity can be generated through renewable sources of energy. In addition to no greenhouse gas emissions, there is no fuel costs associated with renewables either. Sunlight, geothermal energy, moving water energy are all free. You will be emailed um, information about the Inflation Reduction Act and incentives to electrify your home. Um, Gabby will send out an email um, for resources affiliate associated with this service. Until I became a grandparent, it was hard for me to experience joy in nature to the fullest extent. I always had a deep-seated guilt that somewhere else in the world, climate perils were being experienced. Now, while that is still true, my grandchildren motivate me to take climate activism even more passionately. Not limited to organizing and political action, I'm living a more meaningful life by remembering the underlying truth. All children and future generations deserve a livable world. So take heart, have courage, be brave. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children, said Chief Seattle. <laughs>